Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. What we have here today is a bad set of circumstances for you, unfortunately. Uh, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. It doesn't have to be bad. Depends on what your afternoon schedule is, I suppose. I, you've got a, a, a preacher who's been gone for about five or six weeks. Um, stuff rolling around in his mind. You've got graduate recognition, which delays the time he gets into the pulpit. And then you've got the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to cut short the time that he gets out of the pulpit. And it's just not, it's not a good set of circumstances for you. It's fine for me, not a good set of circumstances for you. Uh, this morning, when I realized that this uh, set of events was all unfolding, and I showed my son my four pages of notes, this was his exact quote from the kitchen in his shorts without a t-shirt as he's getting himself breakfast. He said, Dad... You might want to mention some of that next week. <laughs> so I might mention some of it next week. That might be the exact tack that we take. We'll see how it goes. Um, the last time I was with you, we looked at the life of David. And what I was trying to do is I was trying to, uh, to really contrast two different men in the Old Testament. That is King Saul and that of King David. Saul being the very first king of Israel, uh, the man who was shoulders and head taller than anyone else, the warrior king who conquered enemies, uh, the king who uh, earned the respect of his people in terms of what he did for a burgeoning empire. Uh, but Saul was motivated by fear. When Saul saw circumstances around him he, and he was afraid, he sinned. And he did it over and over again. It was not just once. He's afraid that Samuel won't show up and that the people will leave him, so he offers a sacrifice he shouldn't have offered. God condemns him for it. He's afraid when the people get excited about David that David's going to usurp his throne, and so he, because he's afraid, he tries to kill him. He's afraid that this big giant Goliath is out there, and he being the guy, again, head and shoulders above everyone in Israel, should be the champion of God's people as the king to go meet him, and he won't do it. He's afraid when he hears that the Philistines have gathered towards the end of his ministry and that they're going to attack and their numbers say that they're probably going to win. He's afraid that the judgment of God, which had already been promised, was going to come, would actually come now. And out of his fear, he dabbles into witchcraft and sorcery to try to find some way out of his plot. That's King Saul. He's a guy constantly motivated by fear. And it says it in the text. In each of those circumstances, we have the admission of Saul in the text, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid, and so I did this. David, on the other hand, is not a man afraid. Not because he's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else, but because he has tremendous faith in God. He sees the same Philistine that terrifies Saul, and he says, Who is this heathen who would assault the armies of the living God, who would insult the living God while he worships a dead God? And he's not afraid. Over and over again, David is fearless. And I tried to contrast those two things, and we built David up quite a bit. In 2 Samuel 15, we see a very different side of David. 
Uh, this is going to go down in three parts. I'll try to break it up and be clear when I'm changing. Uh, but part one, I'm going to call his situation, which we could just as equally call his son. His situation or his son. David, at this point in his life, is not the young youth who faced Goliath. He's made many mistakes, and he has sinned. He has failed. The Bible has been clear about his mistakes. It has been clear about his failures. David had many wives. Not one, not two. Scriptures reference eight, at least four at one time. At least ten concubines which are referenced in this passage. David was not pure in his relationships before the Lord by any modern standard. Though he didn't break any Old Testament law, he clearly violated the principle of Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Having ventured from the counsel of God's word, he commits sin in one instance, certainly mistakes in another. One such mistake is his marriage to a woman named Maka, who's described to us as the daughter of Talmai, who is the king of Geshur. Now, Geshur is an interesting place. If you're into archaeology and excavation, at one point they thought Geshur was just a little village. You can look up Geshur now on the internet and see it's, it was this huge fortified city in Syria. So David had taken a wife for strategic alliances. He'd taken the princess of Geshur as one of his wives, this lady named Maka, even though she was not an Israelite. She comes from a pagan people and worships foreign gods. In 2 Samuel 11, we see his failure with Bathsheba that begins simply with a famous verse in 2 Samuel 11 too, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And from there he takes a man's wife. When the woman is pregnant, he conspires to have the man killed. He then marries the woman to try to cover it up, and then Nathan the prophet confronts him in 2 Samuel 12, saying, although you would hide this thing from every man in the world, you've not hidden it from God. Here are the words of Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12. I'll just read it to you, four verses. Why have you sinned, or why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword will never depart from your house. That is sin and consequence. And the ladies are going to watch Pride and Prejudice. This is sin and consequence. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord 
also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Which is just a little reminder of how serious our sin is before the Lord. Forgiveness, the Lord putting away his sin, is that David shall not die. Consequence is God's judgment, which is coming. Well, David has sons. And he has a son by this princess of Geshur named Absalom. Described to us as a very remarkable looking man. Must have been very charismatic. One of David's sons, by one woman, forces himself on the daughter of David by another woman. Very scandalous. Very evil. The Old Testament law calls that a capital offense in which the person, the man who forces himself, should be killed. But while David is angry, he does not inflict judgment on Amnon, who did this thing, and lets Amnon live. Well, the woman who is violated in this has a brother, and the brother is Absalom. And he is furious both at his father for not pronouncing judgment, but also at Amnon, his half-brother, who's done this thing. And he sits on it for years. Then one day, he invites David and all the king's sons out into the field for a celebration of a harvest. They're going to shear the sheep. He invites his father and the sons to come join him in the shearing. And David says, no, my son, we'd just be a burden hosting all of us out there while you have work to do. And so Absalom pleads, let Amnon join. David expresses reservation and caution, but Absalom persuades him. Amnon joins him, and they murder Amnon as vengeance for what he did to Tamar. The punishment for murder is, again, death. David is angry, but he does nothing. Absalom, anticipating capital punishment for murder, flees in exile to his grandfather's kingdom, Geshur, where he lives for a few years, until David, through his mourning, is convinced by Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem without repercussion. He does. There's a little conniving on Absalom's part to get there. But at the end of the day and at the beginning of chapter 15, David has a murderer for a son in a place of political office in the capital city of Jerusalem who supposedly has made peace with everything and his father. But it doesn't take us long to see that the opposite is actually occurring. These are David's mistakes. This is his sin. This is his grief over his own children. This is the expression of Psalm 51.3, which Justin read this morning. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And maybe you've come here this morning and you can say something very much similar to that. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have things to be ashamed of. And if you have lived long enough, there are certain mistakes that I cannot flee from. My sin is ever before me. Now his situation unfolds in the first 12 verses of chapter 15, which we will just read, the conspiracy of Absalom. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses 
and 50 men to run before him, a big parade everywhere he went to make himself look great. Now Absalom would rise early, and he would stand beside the way to the gate. This is the gate of Jerusalem, the capital. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, he would come to Jerusalem, that Absalom would call to him and say, wait, what city are you from? Absalom would preempt the king and stop. Where do you come from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right. That's what everybody with the lawsuit wants to hear, right? I like this judge. He says, my case is good and right. Well, Absalom would do that with everyone. But there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Lies. Moreover, Absalom would say, All that I were made judge in the land, and that everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, and then I would give him justice. Some justice, hear one side of the story and proclaim someone's right. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. The prince would put out his hand as if to be kissed, but when the person would grab the hand, the prince would reach out and kiss whoever was there, whoever embraced him. Affection, honor, what a thing to be embraced by a prince. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years, it's either a scribal error, four years instead of 40, or it's 40 years from the beginning of the kinghood in Israel, which is Saul's reign. I won't spend a lot of time on it this morning. You can deep dive it if you want, or we can talk about it later. But after a few years of this behavior, that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I have made to the Lord. So he goes to his father David. I made a vow, I need to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron happened to be the former capital city in Israel. This is where kings were anointed in Hebron. Jerusalem, which David had conquered, had become the capital, but he says, I want to go to Hebron and pay the vow I made to the Lord, some sacrifice. For your servant took a vow while I dwelled at Geshur, that's his grandpa's empire, when he fled in exile after killing Amnon. He says, I took a vow while I was there. If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Serve meaning worship. I will worship him. I'll make offerings. So the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. How eager parents are to see the best in their children. Can't fault them for it. There is precious little evidence in Absalom's life that he has genuine honor for God. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he sends people throughout all the empire ready to proclaim this. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. He takes 200 prominent men with him from the city who think they're just going out to make a sacrifice. And they're going to get caught up in this whole thing because I presume Absalom is not just going to let them go when they realize what's really happening. 
He's making it look like he has massive support even among the people of Jerusalem with the great men who would go out to him. It's a very politically shrewd move. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo. While he offered sacrifices, the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. That's David's situation. That's part one. Not a good situation to be in, is it? Part two, his steps, his actions. What does David do? Verse 13 and 14. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom, make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. First, David's first course of action is we're not going to close the gates and create a siege situation in Jerusalem and defend the walls because we don't have the troops to hold off Absalom and if he comes in here with the gates closed and the city under siege, when he breaks through, he will put the citizens to the sword. So David's response is, I would rather leave and vacate the throne than watch Jerusalem be slaughtered. We see something very similar in the mouth of the high priest when it comes to dealing with Jesus in John eleven fifty. It is better that one man should die. And all the people. So his first step, self-sacrifice to save Jerusalem. He will go into exile. Let's read on. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him. And stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. This is David's second step. Self-sacrifice to spare the Philistine proselytes. These are men of Gath. You know who else was from Gath? Goliath. Philistines. These are Philistine converts who came with David after David spent his own time in and among the Philistines. These men returned with David. These men are no longer worshiping the Philistine gods. They now worship Yahweh. They are David's men. They devoted themselves to David and to the worship of the Lord. They are his honor guard, if you'll have it. He says, you came only yesterday. I don't think he means literally they showed up the day before. He means... You're exiles in this land. You don't have a stake in this game. You don't have a homeland, a tribe in Israel to belong to. Stay here and serve the king. By that he means Absalom. He is 
is committing 600 mighty men to Absalom's troop, who he will presumably one day fight against. Because he would rather that than see the men go out and wander in the wilderness and be slaughtered and died with him. Verse 21, we see Ittai's response. You've got to admire this. If you read it in the right light, in the right frame of mind, it's a little bit of a... It's a little bit of a tearjerker. It's a little bit of a chest thumper. It's like, this is a person I can admire. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and that capital Lord, Yahweh, Atai is not just some heathen. He is a servant of Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, and as my Lord, that's David, as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. That means something. David did not have any faithful friends. Faithful for a time. Not lasting. This story is filled with people like that. These people were committed to David, to what he was doing. In life or in death. Let's read on. So first, if you're keeping track, first step, self-sacrifice to save Jerusalem. Second step, self-sacrifice to spare the Philistine proselytes. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Okay, you're in it now. You're in it with me. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him. These men had families. These are not merely soldiers that Itai is committing to this. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the, city, toward the way of the wilderness. Third step, crossing of the Kidron, this little brook outside Jerusalem. Why is this a step? He just walked over some water. I'll tell you why it's a step. Because one day, John 18, 1 says this of the great son of David. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. David would not be the last king to leave Jerusalem to, to experience the rejection of the people. And he would not be the last one in sorrow to cross the brook Kidron. We read on. Verse 24. There was Zadok also, one of the priests, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Hold on. Carry the ark of God back into the city. See what's happened here? The priests are like, look, we remember when David twirled around in a linen ephod and brought this thing into the city. We know the blessings of David. We know Absalom. We know he has no real love for God. If David is going to exile, all the priests are mobilizing and we're taking the ark of God too. And David says no. 
the ark does not belong to me. (laughs) And the people do not belong to me. And the worship doesn't belong to me. And you priests don't belong to me. You belong to the city of God and to his people. Carry the ark of God back into the city. Now listen to this response. And maybe you have felt this in your life. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and show me both the ark and its dwelling place. But if he says thus, if God tells me, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Man, that is powerful stuff. Not only can God do whatever He wants, He has the right to do whatever He wants. That's powerful stuff. Have you humbled yourself before God this way? Have you looked at your life and your sin and your mistakes and your shame and your embarrassments? And in your suffering, have you acknowledged before an almighty God what Job acknowledged? Blessed be the name of the Lord. In joy and in suffering. Job. Job one twenty one. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now that's what God can do. And then, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he has right to do it. Do not be the sort of person that stops at God can do whatever he wants. No. We must be people that move to God can do whatever he wants and he is right to do it. No matter what it means to me. When you come before God, it requires a humbleness of of Isaiah. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the glory of the Lord. Compare David to the sons of Eli, who in their moment of distress marched the Ark of the Covenant out with them into battle for good luck. Compare him to Saul, who though he knows God's judgment, as David knows. Again, remember, David knows God's judgment. What did he say? What did I read to you? 
Through the prophet Nathan, I will raise up adversity from your house against you. David is not under any illusion. He knows he is a sinner. He knows he deserves judgment. Saul was a sinner who knew he deserved judgment. And at every point, judgment seemed to come. Saul tried to connive his way out of it and manipulate his way through it and escape the hand of Almighty God. He knew what God could do, but he refused to acknowledge that God had any right to do it. Saul tries to kill David because he's a threat to the throne. Saul murders the priests of Nob because he suspects a conspiracy. Saul conjures Samuel through a witch because he's afraid the judgment of God has finally come. But not David. A Christian person in suffering, in shame, in embarrassment, and in difficulty says what David says here. If the Lord desires, it will be this way. If he doesn't desire, it will be this way. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, he will not take the ark. Now, part three. So, we've had his scenario, his situation, or his son. That's part one. Part two, his steps. Part three, his sorrow, and this is where it turns to hope. He has a conversation with Zadok that I'm going to pass through because of time. Um, the conversation is about, look, Zadok, go back, serve, uh, and report whatever happens here in Jerusalem to me. Let me know what's happening, but go back and serve the Lord with the ark in Jerusalem. Now verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up and he had his head covered and went barefoot. Who else went the road to the Mount of Olives? David goes up to the Mount of Olives weeping after he crosses over the Kidron. Jesus, after he crossed over the Kidron, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him. Voluntary disciples, voluntary people following David, following the son of David. It says here, David wept as he went up. In Matthew 26, verses 36 and following, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He has been rejected by Israel, as has David. I think it's, we're told that Psalm 3 is a psalm of David in his fleeing from Absalom. We don't know when in the fleeing process, but it seems to me it fits in this trip from Jerusalem all the way to the Mount of Olives, Psalm 3. I'll read it to you in a moment, but verse 31, well, I'll finish verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, wept as he went up. 
he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Verse 31, Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Ahithophel was a counselor of David, not just any counselor. It said of Ahithophel in the scripture that his counsel was as if he were an oracle from God. That's God in his word telling us about the counsel of Ahithophel. He was savvy, a political genius. For some reason, he and David had parted ways. He's not among the king's counselors anymore. Could very well be because of the kind of stuff we see here. But Absalom has called Ahithophel out of exile and said, I'll be the next king, come counsel me. And David, as he ascends into the Mount of Olives, is praying, please, Lord, foil the counsel of Ahithophel to Absalom. That's the request, the prayer request. In verse 32 comes the reply from God. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And for those of you that don't know the story, Hushai is going to be the one who foils Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom. He was on the Mount of Olives. He was in this garden. He was there. God had the answer prepared for David on how he was going to do this. And so in the sorrow, we see glimpses of hope. Glimpses that God is with me. Promises of something maybe in the future. Now they meet and they come up with a plan. And he's going to go and he's going to try, he's going to pretend to serve Absalom and try to foil the counsel of Ahithophel. And within one chapter, he saves David's life. And when Ahithophel finds out that Hushai has the king's ear and not him, Ahithophel goes back to his house and hangs himself. Dramatic turn of events. David going up the hill, fleeing from Absalom, praying in sorrow and weeping, hears this news as he ascends to worship. I've got bad news, David. You ever been sad and broken and troubled and you have the call? I've got bad news. <laughs> My heart can't take any more bad news. Why is this piling on to me? Ahithophel has betrayed you and he's with Absalom. And then the prayer request and then Hushai like that. Hope. Here is Psalm 3. Now, this is a psalm of David while fleeing Absalom. Listen to this. Lord, it's very short. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. This is not just a wayward son anymore. He has turned the whole nation into enemies. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. He cries out, God answers. 
I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Here's David. This is his mark, isn't it? Verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people. He's not Saul. Who have set themselves against me all around. I will not be afraid. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Save me, save me, save me. I will not be afraid. You will save me. Now there are resemblances here. Jesus, the son of David, was betrayed by a brother who he loved. Jesus, the son of David, crossed the kindred. Morning ascends the Mount of Olives in sorrows, cries out to God. Whereas David cries out for the judgment he experiences for his own sin, Jesus cries out on the Mount of Olives for the judgment that he goes to for our sin. Jesus, too, is filled with sorrow, but he is not afraid. He, like David, has accepted God's judgment of sin. See the question, Father, is there any other way? That's Matthew 26, 39. Father, is there any other way? There is not. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you hear it in that? Not my will, but thy will be done. Not only do you have a right to do what you will do, Father, but you are right for doing what you will do. Blessed be your name. That's how Christ goes to the cross for us. The unbelievers belong in Absalom's place. And their judgment is certain, and that is tragic. And we ought to have compassion. You ought to care enough about that to speak to unbelievers, to plead with unbelievers, not to do what Absalom is doing here, not to make a mockery of God, not to make a mockery of forgiveness, but to approach God humbly and broken as a man who God has in the palm of his very hand, whose life can be snuffed out like that. But the most faithful Christian people in the world are no better than David. Lord, look at my life. Look at this. Look at my sin. Everything that I am ashamed of, everything that I am embarrassed by, is right in front of my face, continually. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before my face. And then the cry, Lord, save me. Save me. Not because I deserve to be saved. Not because I've made up for what I've done wrong. Save me because you are Yahweh. You are the God who saves 
Romans 10.13 is the joy of every believer. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, to the adulterous woman who barges into a dinner and falls down at his feet to worship him, your sins are forgiving you. Jesus, to Martha, who is mourning her brother's death, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he says to Martha. Do you believe this? I ask you the same question. Do you believe this? Have you called on the name of the Lord Jesus? Have you confronted your sin? Are you ignoring it? Are you imagining that one day you will die and you'll stand before God and on account of all of your good deeds or your general kindness, some church time, that he will just, let's put it all behind us. I'll be lenient. As David was with Absalom, he will not. He has provided at the cost of his only son a way for you to be forgiven and have a right relationship with him. And all who call upon the name of that son, all who believe in the name of that son, all who put their lives in the hands of Jesus Christ will be saved. That is his promise. He alone has the power to forgive sins and he alone has the power to give us eternal life. So I'll ask you what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? It has massive implications for how you will live your life if you believe this. We're going to close with a word of prayer and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, beyond any doubt in my mind, there are people here today who are in their sin meaning that they don't have any forgiveness for their sin from you. They have no relationship with you. They are not serving you. They don't even acknowledge their sin. Perhaps they become callous to it. Father, I ask that you'll soften their hearts. We cannot be forgiven if we can't come humbly and broken before you over our sin. Father, there are others here today who these things are new and strange and unfamiliar. And for them, Father, please plant in their hearts a single message that you have sent your son Jesus to love them by dying in their place and receiving your wrath so that they don't have to experience it eternally. Give them the faith to believe in Jesus. Please, Father, I ask you. And for the rest of us, please keep us from our own pride. Help us to accept your will and to serve you faithfully. Give us friends better than Ahithophel. Faithful people. Help us to be encouraged in your word to serve you truly. 
in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.